Welcome to the Envision Rise podcast show, a podcast that helps foster respect through inclusion, service, and equity. This is episode 11, re-engineering the approach to DE&I in established organizations with Michael Johnson, the Chief Strategy Officer for the American Society of Mechanical Engineers, or ASME for short, and Stacy Hegarty, the Vice President of ENI. Well, before we really get into our conversation, I know you, but our listeners may not. So let's have you give a little bit of your professional history and tell us about yourself. Well, I've had a little bit of a checkered career. I spent the early part of my career at AT&T for a number of years in finance and operational type jobs. I had the opportunity to go over to be the CFO of the NFL Properties, which is the business side of the National Football League, and then had a startup venture in South Africa, a telecommunications venture, and then spent some time at J.P. Morgan and decided to spend some time of a life of leisure. And then a colleague of mine, Constable, took over to be the CEO of ASME and asked me to come in to be his chief strategy officer. So I've been here about two years uh, now. And over the time, that's grown from a small strategy team to now having uh, government affairs, HR, international, and the philanthropic part of our organizations, philanthropic program part of an organization. So I'm having fun and enjoying myself and hopefully I'm making a difference on a daily basis. Well, that's what happens when you let Tom talk you into something. He talks you into one thing and it turns into something else, which is fantastic. So talk to us about the history of ASME. I know it's got a long history, an important history, and let's talk about the mission and vision. Well, ASME, as you know, has been around for a long time. I think we celebrated our 140th anniversary last year. It was founded in 1880, and it was founded as a result of two things. It's a little bit of a misnomer. Many people think it was founded because of activities that were going on with pressure vessels, exploding steam engines, etc. It was really started by two very great engineers who just wanted to get together and start talking about engineering activities and bettering the whole field of engineering, but played a major role in solving some of the problems that they were having in the, in the 1880s. Currently, that's evolved into an organization that has a little bit over close to 100,000 members today, a staff size of about 350 folks who are on the staff side. So, And we have about 5,000 volunteers who are actively volunteering on some kind of basis in the society to help us develop our standards. We are a standards, in addition to being a professional society, we also are a standards development organization. We have over 550 safety standards that we support in many places. So it's the mechanical engineering profession provides almost on a daily basis some kind of thing that we use that has some safety component that ASMEs made some kind of contribution to. That's amazing. And I know for your members, you've got different kinds of members. You've got people who are early career, you've got folks that are later in their career, and you also have student sections that operate at colleges, correct? That's correct. And your student members, do you know how many you have? We have roughly, I think the last number I saw was around 25,000 students. That's amazing. So that's a really great way for soon-to-be graduates to get their foot in the door with their new career and be with a professional society. It's important for their continuing education. So let's talk about strategy. You're the chief strategy officer. It's your job to be forward-looking, to make changes within the organization, and not just make changes, but transformational changes. 
how do you stay ahead of such a rapidly changing world in a rapidly changing industry? Mechanical engineering, yes, we think about boiler code and those kinds of things, but we're also talking biomedical engineering and technology and things that are so quickly changing now. How do you stay on top of everything? Well, I don't know that we do stay on top of everything. I think what we attempt to do is I try to position the organization from a strategy point of view that we've really got to be thinking about 2040, 2050, and how do we want to be as a professional society? So what does a professional society look like in a situation that's where we're 20 years out, 30 years out, et cetera, from that perspective? So I think what I'm trying to do as a strategy officer is really make sure that we identify two things. We identify where there are gaps in the marketplace today. A good example is autonomous vehicles, for example. We know that technology is going to continue to evolve, and there needs to be some kind of safety standards around how autonomous vehicles interact with each other. I was involved in a presentation the other day where they were talking about, you know, autonomous flying vehicles, you know, autonomous airplanes. And so how do you develop standards that would support the ability for people to have unmanned aircraft flying around, transporting people back and forth to various locations. And when you think of bioengineering, uh, tissue testing, et cetera. So I think it's just try to keep abreast of what's going on in the marketplace. I think keep work with our industry partners to help them understand how we can help them. And it certainly sucks we get a lot of pull because we have an industry advisory board and they spend time telling us these are the gaps. This is where we need help. This is where we need support. And so we learn a lot from that perspective and that's helped shape some of the direction that we're going. And we've also kind of narrowed, historically the organizations would like to describe has been pretty broad and thin. I'm trying to drive the organization to we're a little bit more narrow and a little more deeper. So we've identified some key technologies that I think that we need to be focused on. We can't be the solution to everybody. So let's figure out what we do well, play in that space, and continue to work there. Well, let's talk about some successes that you've had driving change within the organization. Have there been any big lessons that you've learned? I don't like to call it a failure because it's never a failure. It's just a lesson learned and a way to recalibrate and regroup. I think when I arrived at the organization, the organization had identified some technologies that they thought that were important to the future and where the organization needed to play. I think one of the biggest successes now is we kind of solidified the key technologies. We sort of solidified the opportunities that we see in the marketplace. And now we've been able to start to begin to shift to the how as opposed to the what. We sort of got the what nailed down, is now turning our attention to how are we going to go about executing our strategy to get there. So I think one of the big successes has been getting that alignment or that understanding of the direction. I think the other big learning for me is how do you engage in a professional society that's volunteer-based? You know, it's not like a corporation where you can kind of edict what people do. These are volunteers. And so the ability to get them aligned, get them focused, uh, get them in the right direction has been one of the biggest learnings I've had that, you know, it takes a lot more conjoling, convincing than you might have if you were in a, in a commercial kind of enterprise. So I think the and one of the blessings, even though COVID-19 was just devastating on the global scale, 
the management team here has met every day since we closed our office last March. And I really do believe that that's made us a much better management team. We have a much better perspective on each other's strengths and weaknesses and perspectives. And so if there's a silver lining in a disaster situation, that's been one of the silver linings. That's a good silver lining. You know, I think a lot of times, especially for executive teams, when you're in the office, it's very easy to fall into habits of just kind of walking down the hall, having a quick conversation, and it's not quite as intentional as what you're describing. That's a really good win. Yeah, we were commenting on the other, excuse me, we were just commenting. In 2019, Tom was in the office 86 days out of the year. So, you know, the amount of time that we spent together as a team was very, very limited. So as a contrast to spending almost over 300 days. Oh my gosh. (laughs) You know, I think that's even if you return to what 2019 looked like, the learning from this year and the teamwork that went into this year is going to carry you forward in a lot of really substantial ways. So let's switch gears a little bit. We're talking people and you and I have had a lot of conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion, what that looks like for ASME. But let's step back a minute and Talk to me a bit about how did ASME come to be on this journey to become a more equitable and inclusive society? That's a great question. I think I would try to address it this way. One is leadership in the sense that the Tom and, and the leadership team recognized that it's important to have a diversity of opinion, a diversity of thought. And making sure, you know, Tom has a saying, uh, four hours are better than two and six are better than four. So the notion that you can get more people looking at a problem for a potential solution is sort of a guiding principle. I think the second thing is that we're just operating in a much more diverse world. We need change one. Secondly, if you look at the engineering profession, we've got heavily male-dominated and heavily white male-dominated. And we need to figure out how we change that. And so part of as part of being a professional society, taking on the challenge of our STEM programs, how do we reach into inner city schools? How do we encourage more women to be involved in the engineering profession is something important for the future. As I said, if we get to think about this organization in 2050, the world is going to look different. And we need to begin to shape our organization so it looks differently so that we can attract the kind of talent that's going to be available in the labor pools that are going to be there in those kind of time frames. And that's certainly going to be different than it is today. So it's not only a social imperative for us. I think it's a business imperative that's important for us to be able to start to address. So my words, I think we're taking baby steps, but we're taking steps and we're moving in the right direction. It's something that we try to build into every conversation that we have as a leadership team, that DEI is important. And that's what we're focused in on, making sure that we drive that throughout the organization. And it may be a broader vision, but it's not about excluding anybody. It's about including everybody. And I think many times in these initiatives, like diversity and DEI, people perceive it as being well, I'm being excluded. And I think the message that we, at least what I'm trying to demonstrate to folks, this is about inclusion. This is about making sure everybody's involved, everybody's participating, everybody has a seat at the table and has the ability to make a contribution. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because as you mentioned, engineering in general has been a traditionally pretty homogenous career path for people, mostly men, mostly white men. 
And that is starting to change. And we couple that with knowing what the U.S. Census projections look like for 2050, for 2060. The United States is changing and our population is looking different, thinking different, behaving differently. That's a tough conversation to have with people in the moment sometimes, especially when you've got members who have been long term. And I know some of your employees have been with you 30 years, 35 years. There's a lot of longevity there. How, from your position, are you working to calm some of those, maybe not fears, but some of the nervousness that can come along when people hear the words diversity, equity, and inclusion and equate that with there's no longer a place for me here. I think it's just having the conversation that refutes that. It's about everybody being involved. This is not about making white men wrong. It's about making sure that people who feel disenfranchised in some say profession, we're we're creating an environment where they have the opportunity to make a contribution. I tell the story, this happened to me longer than I want to admit in terms of time, when I was at AT&T, we had a number of affinity groups. And at that time, I guess the proper nomenclature was the gay group. I don't forget what how they labeled themselves. They asked me to speak. And I said, I want to meet with the chairperson of the group, have a conversation before I agree to speak at their conference. And, and they had a pretty large conference. I would say they had like a thousand participants in this conference. So it wasn't, you know, just like a small group. And I said, you know, I'm not sure I want to do this because you know, that's really kind of private. That's What people do in the privacy of their own homes is their business. You know, it's not my business. And she very nicely said, well, okay, I see you have a picture of your wife on your desk. And I said, yeah, I do. She says, I can't do that. I can't have my partner picture on my desk. She said, when you get in the elevator on Monday morning, somebody says, what did you do this weekend? You say, oh, my wife and I or my girlfriend and I, we went to the movies. We washed our car. She said, I can't do that. And it was my aha moment in the sense that as a leader of an organization, I have an obligation and responsibility to create safe space where people can come to work and bring their whole selves to the work and not have to be in the shadows. So those are the kinds of conversations, to your point, that I have that try to drive the point. It's about inclusiveness. It's about making sure that we as leaders or as organizations or managers, if you're managing people, Your job is to get the best out of those folks that you can. And one of the ways to do that is creating a space uh, where they're comfortable, they can be themselves, and they bring all of themselves to the workplace, not just a portion portion of themselves. Well, my work here is done. (laughs) I think that's a tough thing sometimes for an executive to get across in a way that people can hear and can accept. So I think that's a wonderful example that you use. And I think just having your own personal experience with it makes a big difference for people that may be feeling uncomfortable about it. Do you have any specific goals at this point for the future state of ASME and how you might look with on your journey to being that equitable and inclusive workplace? And beyond that, you're an international organization, so you've got all sorts of different people with different backgrounds and different beliefs. Do you have some thoughts on what you would like that to look like in the future? I do. Those thoughts are continuing to evolve. But I think for me, one particular thing is being aware, just being aware of that when you walk in a room, you're aware of the diversity in the room. 
If you walk in a room and there's all men sitting around, then a signal goes off in your head. This is problematic. I may not be able to solve it, but I'm aware that it's problematic. So I think there's an awareness component that I think is important for people to have. And I think if people are aware or sensitive, then there's more of an opportunity to do something about it. So if I could say the number one thing in my mind is that if people are aware, so they recognize this problem, I think many folks today, it's not on their radar screen. They're not bad people. They just don't think about it. We go into a code committee meeting and there's no women. We're talking about, you know, a press vessel as opposed to, well, wait a minute, there's, you know, there's no women here or that, that the world has changed. And some of the things that we said and did 20 years ago aren't inappropriate anymore. So I'm not sure that's a very clear answer, but I think the biggest line in my mind, I think, to making change is people being aware and being sensitive. And then you have an opportunity to do something about it. I think that's really a worthy goal for every organization that it does start with awareness and change starts from recognizing that something needs to be done differently. So I think that's a really fantastic goal. Last question I have, and it's not really about anything we've talked about so far. We do like to wrap up our episodes by me asking our guests, what are you learning? What are you doing differently? It doesn't need to be related to work. I, clearly over the past 15, 16, 18 months, whatever it's been, we've all uh, been challenged to find ways to fill some of the time at home. Got any new hobbies? What are you doing? I think the biggest change is commuting into New York always took an enormous amount of time. So that was probably four hours out of my day, you know, in and out, just, you know, in terms of round numbers. So I won't say filling up that time. I won't say learning how to cook, but cooking more. <laughs> Maybe I should ask your wife if you've learned to cook. <laughs> and I'm on a first name basis with the people at William and Sonoma. So that's probably problematic <laughs> from that perspective. You know, and then recently I just bought a new con dominium. So that's all the challenges of moving and packing boxes. And so I, that's what I'm currently in the middle of getting ready to move. So that's another challenge. But that's Great. pretty much it. I mean, I think that having a global team sort of has a 24 hour clock associated with it. So we're spending a lot of time. on Zoom. <laughs> Well, last thing before we go, if anyone is interested in learning more about ASME or becoming a member, Michael, where should they go? ASME.org, very comprehensive website, tells a lot about our programmatic activities, all the events that we have going on, and various ways that people can engage with us. And Fantastic. And I know on that website, there's also more information about what ASME is doing with regard to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So it's a very well-rounded website with lots of great information. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you have a very busy week going on. We're almost at the end of it. Thank you again. We appreciate it. And if anyone would like more information on Envision Rise, visit our website at envisionrise.com. You can find information about our training and services, as well as our podcast, blogs, and other resources. Thank you again. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thanks, Michael. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Remember, diversity and inclusion should not be treated as a one-off initiative. And so with your help, we can get this message to more people. Subscribe, rate, and review the show and be a part of making a difference because it starts with you.